Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I am 153 years old. In order to achieve immortality, I uploaded my consciousness onto a series of network computer servers. My human skeleton is now part of a bird habitat for ashy-throated tanagers in Bolivia. They perch on my clavicles all day. Meanwhile, I am alive in the cloud. This is so great. <clears throat> Actually, I'm kind of bored. I know what, I'll recite poetry to myself. That's always fun. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the, the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted and half-deserted and half-deserted street. Dang, it's happening again. I am way overdue for maintenance. Greg? 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 <sighs> what is it? That thing is happening again. Ever since the latest Microsoft 79 upgrade, I don't work right. Look, there's only one of me. I spent all morning fixing Oprah, and now I'm supposed to be working on Jerry Lewis. When they set this thing up, they didn't budget for enough technicians. And Microsoft 79 really sucks. Every time it updates, nothing works. I told all of you to get Apple. Mac Afterlife is so much better. Oh, please, don't start. I've been listening to you Apple worshippers for 83 years. The thing is, all of you have run out of things to do. You're bored with every possible form of stimulation. And you know what's left? You know the one thing that remains when everything else has become mentally superfluous? Complaining. Exactly. That has become the primary recreational activity of approximately 1.3 million uploaded human identities. As a result, for those of us who are still young and alive and inhabiting human bodies... You've turned early existence into a living hell. You promised to install the new software that makes me think I'm asleep for eight hours. I hate being awake all the time. Definitely. After I defrag Rob Lowe and Kanye, who's complaining about his cooling fan. Not Kanye. Kanye always goes first. Kanye always gets what he wants. This is just like when we were all alive. Greg? Greg? I should have been a, been a pair, of, pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Today's show is about our quest for immortality and some of the limitations we may encounter. And now... Uh, man, it's happening again, isn't it? Greg! Greg! <laughs> so that's a little parable about why you shouldn't have your consciousness unloaded unless you really have a really good maintenance plan. And that's the kind of thing people don't check. They don't look at the terms of service and they don't check that. We, that's not the only kind of immortality or vast life extension. I mean, immortality is sort of the theme of our show today, although, in fact, we'll be looking at life extension, life extension that, you know, maybe is not exactly equivalent to immortality at times, but uh, might amount to many, many, many hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years, a thousand years during which you would look and feel, if you so chose, the way you looked and felt or the way people looked and feel uh, when they're 20 or 25 years old. We have that to talk about. Also, the broader questions uh, of our, A, our quest for immortality. Why do we do it? Uh, why do we want it? Uh, and do we really want it, or do we just think we want it? Uh, and then what would happen if we got it, or if we got something like it? You know, what are the ethical considerations? Who else 
has an interest in our living for 800 years besides, you know, us. All right. So um, or an interest maybe against that. So before I wander around anymore, let me just introduce uh, who's on the show today. Joining us from from Berlin, uh, Stephen Cave is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He holds a Ph.D. in metaphysics from Cambridge and has worked as a diplomat for the Queen of England. OK, I feel really underqualified right now. Uh, he He's the author of Immortality, the Quest to Live Forever and How It Drives Civilization. Joining us in studio, we never do the show without uh, him. Wendell Wallach is a consultant ethicist and scholar at Yale Center for Bioethics, where he chairs the Working Research Group on uh, Technology and Ethics. His upcoming book, A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control, will be out on May 12th, by which time it will be too late. Uh, no, I'm sure it's not too late by May 12th. And in just a second, we'll add also Aubrey de Grey. He's a leading expert on anti-aging medicine and technology, as well as, well as the chief science officer for the SENS, and we'll tell you what SENS stands for, Research Foundation. Uh, he is the co-author of Ending Aging, the rejuvenation breakthroughs that could reverse human aging in our lifetime. He also runs the Methuselah Mouse Prize, uh, which is for uh, breakthroughs in extending aging in mice, which is one of the places this all might start. Uh, but that's that's one facet of this. Before we get to that facet, before we bring uh, Aubrey in, he's listening right now. Stephen Cave, I am going to start with you. For some reason or other, this topic generates lots of lists. Like Aubrey has seven different problems that have to be solved. Uh, and I think Wendell has some list of things that have to be dealt with, too. And you, you have a list, too, which is the four ways in which we contemplate and perhaps pursue the notion of mortality. So why don't we start there? Just uh, quickly uh, tick through our four possible paths to immortality. Right. So the, the quest for immortality is as old as civilization. And every culture, every religion has some way of saying we can defy death. But what's interesting is if we look very closely at all of these stories about how we can achieve immortality, what we see are four fundamental kinds of story that repeat themselves again and again. Now, the first one is the most obvious. We don't want to die. We want to stay alive in these bodies on this earth. And exactly that, staying alive, discovering the elixir of life in some form, is the most fundamental, the most basic immortality story. And we see it in ancient Babylon, ancient China, ancient Egypt, and of course, throughout Europe in the story of the alchemists. And we're trying to achieve it with science today. But the success rate of those seeking an elixir isn't that good. The one thing they all now have in common is they're six foot under. So we need a backup plan. And exactly that kind of backup plan is what the second fundamental kind of immortality story offers, and that's resurrection. So it accepts death on the chin. Yep, we're probably going to have to die, but don't worry. We can rise again and physically live again. In other words, we can do what Jesus did. But this kind of story of physically rising from the grave reminds some people too much like a bad zombie movie. Bodies are unreliable, they're messy. And so the alternative, the third fundamental kind of immortality story is to leave the body behind and live on as a soul. Something that by its nature is immortal and indestructible and can go off to heaven and live for eternity. But then there are skeptics about the existence of something like a soul. And so if you don't think you can live on as a body, you don't think you can live on as a soul, then what's the alternative? Well, the fourth fundamental kind of immortality story is legacy. Living on through the echo that you leave in the world, whether through children or through great works of art, leaving your name somehow. But Woody Allen famously said, 
He doesn't want to live on in the hearts of his countrymen. He wants to live on in his apartment. And of course, if you want to live on in your apartment, then that's the first immortality story, living forever. And so the circle is complete. I was going to actually trot out that very same Woody Allen quote. That's basically what Aubrey will be talking about, how to live on in your apartment. But Wendell, before we get to Aubrey, I mean, you know, somewhere in there, in, in uh, Stephen's list of four, is that also that notion of you could leave your body behind but not continue on as a soul? You could just leave your body on behind, behind and continue on. Well, you heard the intro, and there are lots of other scenarios, right? You ditch the body, you get a different body, you get a clone body, you get a clone brain, you get a clone. You know, there's lots of different ways in which you could leave your body behind that don't really deal with the idea of the immortal soul. Exactly, and one of the big forms of immortality that has come up technologically is uploading your mind into a computer, which gives you both the chance of living in a robotic body and leaving behind these pesky organs that just decay and and get diseases. Or when you live in this uploaded form, you could also live sort of like a soul in the far reaches of cyberspace, traveling through the networks of computers from one reality to another. Um, so, Aubrey de Grey, let's talk about um, Stephen Cave's first scenario. You get to live on in your apartment. Um, this is uh, the, the research to which you have dedicated yourself and to your organization uh, and, and especially raising the money uh, to maybe even have enough funding to catch up with what science can already do. Maybe let's begin even with the acronym SENS, S-E-N-S. Tell people what that stands for. It stands for Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence, which probably immediately explains why we don't bother to actually <laughs> tell people that very much. Um, uh, it, it's, it's got its roots in other terminology that people use who study the biology of aging, but uh, you know, basically it just talks about developing medicine so that one's state of health and therefore one's risk of dying anytime soon is independent of how long ago one was born, in contrast to today's situation where obviously one's risk of dying in the next year, shall we say, goes up by about 10% each year. And you do believe that, that, and you do, I don't know if we'll have time to go through all the this kind of seven fixes that essentially need to, need to be made, but that it is possible to, to, to fix or to change these seven conditions which cause people to die of, essentially of old age. That's correct, yes. Um, it hasn't been foreseeable for very long. Uh, 20 years ago, for example, I would say that there were some very significant gaps in the underlying technologies that we had developed, um, such that it was not possible to come up with a concrete plan for implementing the repair of all of the important types of damage that accumulate in the body. But these days, um, as a result of advances in regenerative medicine and in many other areas of bio biology and biomedical research, uh, we are not in that position anymore. We can't obviously do it yet. There is still a fair amount of research to do, and I think we probably have only a 50-50 chance or thereabouts of actually completing the job even within the next 20 years. But still, that's very much foreseeable. That's going to be soon enough for a lot of people who are alive today and are listening to this program, in fact. So the sooner we do it, the more lives we will save, and that's why this, that's why Sense Research Foundation exists. Um, by the way, uh, we'll make that available to you for a $200 pledge to public radio. Uh, you can then live for a 1,000 years. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, th we're just not going to give it away to anybody listening to the radio, Aubrey. Uh, we've got to somehow or other get some uh, public radio money out of that. And so let me just ask you one more thing, and I want to sort of throw this back to Stephen and Wendell, too. But to your way of thinking, Aubrey, 
why is it that we weigh, that we age at all? In other words, you know, our our DNA, I think, is the DNA basically of you know a young, healthy, vital being. Why, why is it that we age? So this is actually far less of a mystery than some people seem to assume. Um, the simple fact is that the human body is a machine. I'm not making any statement there about whether the human being is just a machine. In other words, you know, whether we have a soul or other kind of non-physical attributes, but the human body, namely the, um, the physical aspects of, the human, of, of a human individual, is a machine. And any machine with moving parts does damage to itself as a side effect of its normal operation. Uh, we have uh, we're a very very complicated machine, of course, and therefore uh, we don't understand the details of how that damage occurs. But still, the damage occurs, and much of that damage is automatically repaired as it's created by the self-repair machinery that we have built into us. But that self-repair machinery is not 100% comprehensive. It has gaps in it, and those gaps are the types of damage that do accumulate throughout life as a result of not being automatically repaired and eventually they accumulate to a level that the body can't tolerate and therefore the body declines in function and eventually ceases to function. So uh, I'm going to switch it over to Stephen Cave for a second. So Stephen Cave, uh, I'm, I just turned 60. I'm basically a coward. So I'm sitting here. I've got pennants made up that say, go Aubrey, go Sens. Let's do this. <laughs> Give me another 83 years. Uh, and, and so just, you know, factoring for my own uh, immaturity and lack of deep reflection. What's wrong with that attitude? What's what's wrong with my thinking? Of what, if anything, what's wrong with my saying, go, Aubrey, I do want to live another 100 years? Well, I also very much hope that Aubrey's right, and I, and I wish all the best for his research. But from the point of view of the rest of us punters, then we need to bear in mind the very long history of this quest. Now, Aubrey's belief that we're on the verge of conquering aging is one that people have been believing for at least 5,000 years. So if we had an ancient Egyptian here now, he would say, you know, look at this fantastic civilization we've built, look at everything we've achieved, look at our medicine, look at our buildings, and the elixir of life is just around the corner. I just need a little bit more money, 20 years, and I'll have it. This is something that we believe to a large extent because we want to believe it. Now, of course, one day it might happen. If this doesn't mean that it won't happen, one day it might. But for most of us, normal people, the question, should we believe this? Should we believe that we're the lucky generation who are really going to get the elixir of life? Well, actually, the odds are against. To live our lives as if, in fact, we're going to live forever because the elixir of life is about to be invented would be a mistake. Wendell, I want to go back to one of Aubrey's premises. It's actually, uh, and we're going to bring up a term that you and I have used on this show before, techno-solutionism. So uh, here's the problem. The problem is the body is a machine. Uh, like any machine, it doesn't work last forever unless you do certain things to it. But if you do the right things to it, the machine will just keep working. How well does that resonate with you? Well, I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't think we fully understand even the machine, presuming we are just a machine well enough to know whether doing all the technological fixes will will give us radical life extension. But the simple fact is that since the Industrial Revolution, um, our life expectancy doubled between 1850 and 2007 from 39 to, to 79. And it more or less continues to grow at two to three years every decade. So average life expectancy is growing. So that we're going to see no matter what. 
But what Aubrey is proposing is that we can make some radical leaps forward so that life is not just extended by two to three years every decade through scientific prowess, but it gets extended by 20, 30, 50, 60, perhaps much longer. And so, Aubrey, just to be clear, what you're talking about is not simply curing the diseases that most of us have to worry about, whether those are respiratory diseases or, or cancer or heart disease or Parkinson's or ALS, or uh, not just about curing those diseases one by one. You're talking about an overall fix of the human body itself that kind of takes those diseases out of the equation? Well, first of all, I should mention that something went wrong, and I couldn't hear any of what Stephen said in uh, response to your question. Before. We do have that so problem. Okay. If you come back to that, then um, uh, let's worry about that later. But, um, yes, yeah, to answer your question, that's right, yes. The idea here is to treat aging as a coherent you know, network of processes that are driven by the accumulation of molecular and cellular damage and not to distinguish between the things that most people conventionally view as aging itself uh, as opposed to the things that they think of as specific diseases. The fact is any disease, any phenomenon that is bad for us in old age and predominantly does not affect people who are young adults, that is a part of aging one way or another, whether or not we choose to call it a disease. And we will never have a cure for diseases like Alzheimer's or atherosclerosis and so on that is of the same nature as the cures that we have for infectious diseases because these diseases of old age, just like what people call aging itself, are simply side effects of the body's normal operation. They're side effects of being alive in the first place. And as such, they can't be eliminated from the body at all without eliminating being alive in the first place, which would rather defeat the object. Um, Aubrey, I, I am going to sort of take uh, Stephen Cave's uh, point and filter it through the exquisite, exquisite mechanism of my own sensibilities and, and sort of state it back to you a different way. And I'll, I'll state it back to you as kind of a Pascal's wager, because in, in a way the implications of what Stephen is, is saying, I think, you may correct me on this, is, you know, how, how should we live? Should we live as though we think we're probably going to die, which has been the case, you know, for, for centuries and centuries. There have been lots of people who've talked over the years about, you know, coming very close or breaking through very soon. But the reality is they're dead and anybody who believed them is also dead. So should we, li should we live that way as if we think, well, you know, it's nice that Aubrey's working on that and he's got a whole bunch of other people working on that and it's great with the mice and all that kind of stuff, but we're going to die. Or should we really, does it make sense to get people thinking about this, uh, get think you get somebody who's maybe 25, 30 years old right now thinking, oh, really, it, it, there's, a, you know, there's a probability or at least a very strong possibility that you could be one of the people who lives for 800 years. What's your response? My, my basic view here is that there are two things that someone needs to consider in reflecting on how they should live their life in relation to the possibility of great progress against aging. The first way in terms of their own personal likelihood of making the cut, is that if they can do anything <coughs> to, <coughs> excuse me, to make a difference uh, you know, to the rate of progress, then they are increasing their own chances of making the cut. We don't know whether these therapies are going to be around in 20 years. We don't know whether they're going to be around in 100 years. But every step forward that we make in advancing biomedical technology of all sorts brings that date closer. We don't know whether it's going to be 100 years or not, but we don't need to know. And that brings me to the other point, because if one thinks not about oneself, but about the overall humanitarian value of this work, 
then one doesn't need to know how soon this is going to happen. If my work, for example, is bringing the defeat of aging forward from 100 years from now to only 99 years, then that's, broadly speaking, the same number of lives I'm saving and the same number of same amount of suffering that I'm alleviating as if I were bringing it forward from 20 years to 19 years. It's different people's lives, but that's kind of okay. And that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's not the personal um, hope to, um, to benefit from this technology. <laughs> I'm so interested in personally benefiting from this technology that it's really hard for me to see down the road. But I get the point that you're making, and I think it's an excellent one. Well, you know, boy, uh, we, we need to uh, take a break pretty soon here. But um, Stephen Cave, I think I'm going to come back to you for a second here before we do this. and Because I think we need to sort of talk about the, the, the fundamental human nature of... Uh, of, of thinking about all of this and, and what you refer to as terror management theory. You know, I have a dog and he's 14 and a half years old. He's a fairly big dog. He's 14 and a half years old. So he's, you know, kind of in his 90s really uh, as, a, as a human being. And he's got a lot of different medical problems. And right now I'm starting to have that conversation. You know, at some point I'm probably going to have to end his life for him. Uh, and I'm thinking about what that means to him and what it means to him to be alive and, and, and what it would mean to him to know that I was thinking about all this stuff. And the truth is, it probably doesn't, well, it definitely doesn't mean the same things to him because, in fact, we're probably the only animal that really can kind of think about the end of its, its existence the way we do, although there's some evidence from the field that indicate we might be, not be quite as unique as we think we are. But maybe you could just sort of say something about terror management theory, wh why it is that this is a pressing concern to humankind, given the fact that so far it's been 100 percent inevitable. That's right. We, we have these enormous brains, and these are our major survival asset. We have these very sophisticated sense of self and of the future, and this enables us to plan and to strategize, but they come with a curse, and that is the awareness of death. We look around and we see all living things die. It's probably going to happen to us too. And this realization, which happens some point in the evolution of our species, is terrifying. It's the end of all our hopes, all our dreams, a kind of personal apocalypse we all face. And as you say, most other animals almost certainly don't face this. So this is our curse. And how do we cope with it? Well, by telling ourselves stories that say death isn't what it seems, that we can somehow evade death or death's really just the beginning or the entry to another world. And that's how we cope with this fear uh, in our daily lives. And this is something that philosophers have speculated about for thousands of years. But now there are scientists who are researching the effect that the awareness of death has on our beliefs. And they've shown in over 400 experiments that whenever people are reminded of death, then they suddenly become much more willing to believe stories that tell them death isn't true. Now, this can be Christianity, for example. If you take some agnostics and remind them of the fact of death, they'll suddenly start believing in uh, in Jesus. But this might also be true of nationalism, for example, the idea that we can live on as part of a greater whole, or indeed the belief that science can cure aging or the problem of death for us. So the point is, we're believing these stories that promise very long and definitely long lives, not on the basis of the evidence, but because we very much want to believe them because we're terrified. I mean, Wendell, from a philosophical point of view, this almost does seem like a flaw, you know, a maladaptive aspect of our species. It's like a tuna who's afraid of water. You know, I mean, we are all going to die and we are pretty much close. We are 100, we're 100 percent mortal so far and we're close to 100 percent averse to our mortality. Almost everybody dreads it. And it's, it's sort of odd that we have this revulsion to this thing that's absolutely built into our fates. 
Well, it's not so odd in that it's probably a practical fact of who we are. But I think what Aubrey is trying to suggest here is, well, there's a technological fix for that. We don't have to die. That's the new form of immortality, or perhaps in Stephen's language, that's just a form of immortality that is the old form that was called magic or elixirs. So perhaps that kind of way of thinking gives us some solace But the bigger problem is going to be if it turns out to be a reality that we can radically extend our life, how is that going to change the quality of our life? How will that change the way we think about what we do? Do we we retire? Do we not retire? Or do we get into a situation where very absence of death changes the quality of how we think about our, our lives in ways that could be positive or could be negative? We're going to grab a quick break here. We'll be back with more of all three of our guests, Aubrey de Grey, Wendell Wallach, Stephen Cave. If you want to live forever, the first 100 people who pledge over $200 to WNPR will be allowed to live for 1,000 years. I actually really probably shouldn't say that. Maybe an FCC violation. best and the worst thing about living forever would be? The worst thing about living forever is all the loved ones will be gone. Uh, The best thing is, well, we probably keep acquiring knowledge. I think if you were immortal or did live forever and you could choose to keep a couple of people with you, obviously that would be great. Well, I'll start with the worst. I think the worst is probably you just run out of stuff to do, boredom. You know, the best uh, would just be being able to see everything that happens in the future. The worst thing actually would be never having a sense of urgency for goals. The best thing might be experiencing centuries and the passing of eras. The best thing about living forever would be to see how everything changes and to enjoy the change in the process. Yeah. And that would be really <laughs> difficult. But you get to meet a lot of new people, so that would be an upside. So the constant, the constant resupply of new people to meet would be exciting. I don't know. I'm, I might lose my sense of urgency if I lived forever, you know? And know. all the things I want to accomplish in, in my life right now that I have, this is it. So get it done instead of living forever. And I could put this off for a little more. Don't put it off. Plus... How many wrinkles would you have if you live forever? I mean, that could be ugly. I don't know. You need a lot of moisturizer. Absolutely. I like that. I need a lot of moisturizer. We should say uh, with us today, Wendell Wallach in studio. Uh, he's a scholar at Yale's Center for Bioethics. Uh, his uh, uh, upcoming book is A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control. Joining us from Berlin, Stephen Cave, uh, his uh, book, Immortality, The Quest to Live Forever and How It Drives Civilization. But I'm going to begin this segment with uh, Aubrey de Grey, a leading expert on anti-aging medicine and technology, uh, as well as the chief science officer of the SENS Research Foundation. He's the co-author 
author of Ending Aging, The Rejuvenation Breakthroughs That Could Reverse Human Aging in Our Lifetime. Um, Aubrey de Grey, let me see if I can ask kind of an umbrella question here. Um, you've probably heard every argument against extreme life extension. Uh, you know, I mean, you've, uh, there, there were some of them in the audio we just played. You run out of things to do. You get bored. You, you know, maybe the people who die, you experience their loss more keenly. We're going to talk also in this segment about just the impact on the earth. You know, can we sustain all these extra lives? What do we do with all these people? They're going to start to pile up. Uh, you probably heard a dozen other anti-arguments that I'm not even thinking of right now. Does any of them resonate with you? Is there any argument against extreme life extension that m- gives you some pause? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, that was a, let, let me, let yeah. me tell you why. Let me expand. There are really three steps in coming to the conclusion that we definitely need to put as much effort as we can into solving this problem. The first step is to look at the specific concern that someone may have, whether it's overpopulation or boredom or dictators living forever or how we pay the pensions or whatever. The first thing to do is to look at that and ask, well, okay, is it plausible that the problem would actually occur? And people are very, very bad at that. For example, it's almost universal that people will get terribly worried about the idea that we would have too many people on the planet if we drastically reduce the death rate by eliminating aging. And they don't think about the speed at which the population would increase and the speed at which new technologies will come along to uh, increase the carrying capacity of the planet by, for example, uh, reducing our carbon footprint as a result of increased use of renewable energy, things like that. Uh, You know, these things are not certain by any means, but they are very, very plausible. And the more you look at these things, the more implausible it becomes that these supposed problems that would be created by the elimination of aging would actually occur at all. The second step is to ask, well, okay, even if we got unlucky, even if it turned out that the problem would occur, did occur, would it be anywhere near as bad as the problem we have today, uh, the problem of aging? Now, as has already been said, we seem to have this rather bizarre uh, view that aging isn't actually so much of a problem, and some people you know, immediately jump to reasons to defend aging. But the fact is, aging kills about three-quarters of all the people who die these days. I used to give the statistic of about two-thirds, about 100,000 of the um, 150,000 people that die each day worldwide. But it's actually gone up to around three quarters over the past 20 years. So it's undoubtedly the world's biggest killer by a long distance. And also, of course, it's not just the death, it's all the suffering that precedes the death. The fact that most people that die of aging in one way or another do so after a long period of decrepitude and disease and debilitation and dependence and general misery. So it is undoubtedly the world's biggest problem. And the fact that we're able to put it out of our minds by being irrational about it doesn't stop it from being the world's biggest problem. And it makes it highly implausible that any problem that came along as a result of solving that problem would outweigh it. And then the third step, uh, which is perhaps the most decisive of all, is to say, well, even if by some unimaginable um, bad luck, we ended up indeed creating problems that were even worse than the problem we've got today as a result of solving the problem we have today, then... Who, is it for, uh, who, who should be deciding what to do? Should it be that we would say today, oh dear, oh dear, let's not go there, it's going to be a bad 
kind of world and therefore not develop these therapies? Or should we instead develop the therapies as fast as we can and give humanity of the future the option whether to use them or how to use them? It seems to me that we have an absolutely unarguable moral obligation to go the latter course and to develop these therapies as quickly as possible because humanity of the future is entitled to have the option whether to use these therapies or not. And we would be denying them that option by hesitating and not developing the therapies. All right. So uh, I've got uh, two people uh, as part of the show who, who maybe think about it a little bit differently. Wendell, in a way, you get paid to worry about all the things that uh, Aubrey doesn't want to uh, doesn't think we should worry about. I mean, a lot of this also is kind of techno solutionism, the idea that uh, our ability to solve these problems will keep pace somehow with our ability to extend life. How how confident or comforted are you? Well, I'm, of course, not confident at all. I think that's a deeply flawed argument. And all of these problems are already here. We're already dealing with the overpopulation that's taxing the environment. We're already dealing with the fact that people are living longer and, for example, retiring later because they're afraid of you know, what they see as the boredom of even just living a few extra years. So that's contributing to something that's called technological unemployment that we've talked about in the past. So I'm greatly skeptical that, uh, you know, that this is all going to bear fruit. And let me, you know, let me just use one more example. We've been hearing for over 50 or 60 years that technology is going to solve our health care problems and going to lower the costs of health care. But we're actually seeing the exact opposite. Health care costs are growing at 7 to 8 percent every year. And all analysts argue that roughly 50% of that is due to new technologies, their costs, or the expansion of existing technologies. So I think all of those problems are going to be exacerbated if we go down this road. That doesn't mean we won't go down that road. Aubrey is correct. People are probably going to select, if they go along with his third option, living longer. But that doesn't mean we're not going to exacerbate these problems. Stephen gave. I'm sure you have a number of responses to the uh, to both of both the comments of Wendell and, and Aubrey. But um, let me just try to focus you first in one area, and then you can say whatever you want too. But you know, in philosophy, sometimes we talk about um, the notion of having an interest. You know, who who or what has an interest in, in in what outcome? And and when we talk about this particular topic, we often talk only about human beings, right? Do human beings have an interest uh, in living longer? Is there any interest that human ba- beings has uh, have that might prevail against that first interest? But you. Know, the, obviously, the planet uh, and, and the other life forms on the planet may also have an interest uh, in whether or not human beings live forever. And there even sometimes seems to be uh, seem to be corrective measures that the entire biosphere may take. But one has to wonder whether anybody else besides human beings cares about this. And, and I'm using cares in, in in quotation marks. And if so, whether there may be forces beyond our control that might limit us in, in some of these ways. Yeah, that's a very good point. As a, when we're talking about um, immortality or radical life extension, what we're saying is we want the breakthrough. We, this particular generation of human beings, and at least those among these human beings who can afford it, want the technology that will allow us to live forever. Well, of course, no one's talking about all the other species on the planet. I don't. When Aubrey talks about saving lives, I don't suppose he wants to make elephants immortal. And even aside from other species, we're ignoring the rights of future generations. I mean, if we decide that we're it now, we are the generation of humans that are going to own this planet forever, then we're depriving all sorts of future people of even the possibility of existing. 
those of us who already have children might have to sign our own death warrant and get out of the way for those we've had. But for those who decide that that's it, they're here to stay, then all other beings are pushed to the sidelines. All right, let's grab uh, yet another break here, our, our final break. Uh, in the final section, I want to talk, talk a little bit more about just the sort of the human consequences of, of living forever, how it might change the way we think about the lives that we lead. And Wendell, Stephen, and Aubrey will all be back for that. Hey, it's me again, the uploaded consciousness of Kion Wolf. Do you remember? Ugh, one of the painters left his half-finished lunch, lunch right in front of my optic sensor array. Hey! Hey! hey. I don't want to have to stare at that all afternoon. Hello? Hello? I give up. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, Betsy, Kaplan, and me, with help from our interns, Colleen, Mason, and Nia Tyler. Greg Hill. Greg Hill. Greg Hill. Appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Kitty. Tularski is our executive producer. 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 The part of Don't. Curry was played by Hal. Hey, Greg, I think it's happening again. Again. For articles, show pages, and heartwarming videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff clones prior to organ harvesting, visit our website, www.wnpr.org. And now, now, Greg! Greg! All right, we're back. And uh, we're talking about immortality or radical life extension. And uh, we have, an, I should say that uh, Josh Nalea has done an amazing rock star job of producing this show. And we really have uh, three fabulous guests here. Uh, Aubrey DeGray, the leading expert on anti-aging medicine and technology, uh, and uh, the uh, one of the co-founders of SENS Research Foundation. Uh, he's with us by phone. Wendell Wallach in studio. Uh, he's with the Yale Center for Bioethics. Uh, his new book uh, in May, coming out in May is A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from slipping beyond our control. Uh, and Stephen Cave uh, is the author of Immortality, The Quest to Live Forever and How It Drives Civilization. So, um, uh, Aubrey de Grey, uh, I'm going to begin again with you. And, and um, you know, and I, the, Josh's notes are so fabulous here. I don't even know where this particular line comes from, but it's a great concept. It's a concept that the physicist uh, Max Planck uh, said that uh, wrote that a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because the opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with the idea from the beginning. Now, you could extrapolate from there and say, and I, like I'm 60 years old and I see myself as this incredible font of time-cured wisdom – 
But I'm also like somebody who just doesn't get a whole bunch of things that are coming along. And, and I'm obviously, as I get older and older, going to be less and less ready to accommodate innovative thinking. So you could sort of make the argument, well, maybe it's not really all that helpful if I live to the age of 125 and I'm just gumming up the works with my old ideas. Maybe it's no favor to civilization if I'm still around being cranky and thinking about things using a 1984 or 1985 paradigm. Well, what's your answer to that? Uh, my answer is always to be aware when you find yourself using the word obviously in, in forming a question. <laughs> okay. It usually means that it's not obvious. Um, the, uh, the point, of course, here is that the reason why we become less able to accommodate new information and less you know, mentally, cognitively flexible is because of aging. It's because things are gradually going wrong in our brain, subtly at first and then less subtly. And the idea is to stop that from happening so that one can be as mentally and physically agile at the age of anything as one is in one's early adulthood. Um, this is, of course, also an answer to a point that Wendell made just before the break about the increasing cost of medical care. Of course, the cost of medical care is increasing because at the moment, all we have is high-tech, very expensive medicine for the diseases and disabilities of old age. That doesn't work. It only very modestly postpones the ill health of old age, which means that we end up spending the money we would have spent anyway with less high-tech medicine, um, as well as the money on the new medicine. When we have medicine that truly actually works against the diseases and disabilities of old age, it will be economically a completely different situation. These medicines will pay for themselves incredibly quickly, which means that even a really tax-averse society like the USA will find that it is economically suicidal not to make these therapies available to everybody, irrespective of ability to pay, simply in order to save all the money on... <clears throat> looking after people who are sick and to make sure that the people who are elderly are able to contribute wealth to society and that their kids don't have to be less productive because they're looking after their sick parents and so on and so forth. The economic arithmetic is very clear indeed. Uh, you know, so all of these things really you know, come down to the same question. It comes down to just lack of imagination on the part of the people who are fixated on the um, downsides of these new technologies and the importance of actually uh, developing them in order to improve people's quality of life as well as, of course, quantity of life. The, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution seemed pretty frightening in advance, but I don't think many people are um, saying that they regret that it happened. Stephen, well, that would be an interesting conversation to have as well. But anyway, Stephen Cave, a counter argument to what Aubrey just said would be that, in fact, the knowledge of our death, uh, of our finitude, is one of the things that does, in fact, fuel as opposed to limiting our imagination. So I, I just turned 60 a couple of weeks ago. I'm like Captain Hook. I can hear the clock ticking inside the crocodile who swallowed it. Uh, I've got a, a week off coming a week from now, and I sort of, in some ways, need to stay home and do some things and maybe go to some yoga classes. But I've also never been to Barcelona, and I know my time is short, and I can find a pretty cheap airfare there. And so everything that I think about, every choice that I make, is driven by and fueled by and putatively energized by my sense that my time is limited. So there, there's an argument to be made by a philosopher such as yourself that, that we need that and we're, we're foolish if we begin to comfort ourselves with the notion that Aubrey's going to buy us a few more decades. 
Yeah, I agree completely that awareness of our mortality can lead to le leading a wise life. It can help us to prioritize. It can help us to stop wasting time. You know, if we think we're going to live forever, we can watch daytime TV. We don't have to get up. We can stay in bed for a thousand years. But, you know, because we know we've only got 70 or 80 years, we get up and we go to Barcelona, etc. That doesn't mean that I'm against immortality. And I, for, from my point of view, being a against immortality is like being against unicorns you know there aren't any unicorns there is no immortality so what i'm against is stories that are saying we're going to be immortal because those stories are saying you've got all the time in the world don't worry about it relax when in fact as you say death is the source of all our deadlines i'm sure aubrey is at least partly driven in his work by the knowledge that his time is limited he wants to spend it well and so he's dedicating it to helping people overcome the problems of aging which is which is very noble I mean, Wendell, once again, sort of philosophically speaking for a moment, even setting aside questions of the availability of resources and the stuff that we talked about in the previous segment, there is that notion that the, that what is fundamentally human, or at least what is fundamental to humanity, is the knowledge that we're all terminal cases. And, and that if we really started to think about ourselves in this other way, we really would, in some ways change the nature of humanity. I mean, maybe that's a negligible concern. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. There was an old theory that science developed in the West partially because we were oriented toward the future and driven to accomplish things very quickly, whereby it didn't develop as fully in societies that believed in reincarnation because reincarnation gave you eternity to get it right. You could go over and over again and figure out, uh, you know, you didn't have to do it in this life because you d could do it in the next life. So I think this issue of finitude is, you know, is quite profound. On the other hand, one can imagine that life would be something very different if we did not have that kind of finitude. Perhaps we would all learn to meditate and uh, become enlightened over the thousands of years that we had to fill in. But, uh, you know, that's you know, that's always this question of thinking about, well, what would be the transformations? Who would we be if we went down that road? Um, Aubrey de Grey, what would you do? Uh, imagine that, that, that all of this stuff actually clicked and clicked maybe even faster uh, than you anticipated clicking. What would you do if suddenly it became clear that you did have another 100, 200, 300 years to live? How do you, when you imagine it, imagine spending that time? I haven't the slightest idea, and I don't need to have the slightest idea. You know, the comparison I often make here is with the idea of having some opinion about what time you want to go to the toilet next Sunday. You know, we don't have opinions about things that we will have better information about nearer the time that we can act on. Because it's dumb to have such opinions. I have no idea whether I want to live to 100, but I do want to make sure that I have the option to live to 100 when I'm 99, rather than having that option progressively removed from me by my declining health. You know, if we if we didn't pin this down uh, before, uh, we should pin it down now. Not that it can really be pinned down, but you know, obviously, you're you're right now. You're trying to raise money for more research. You do have prize money available for breakthroughs in mice. Uh, you're looking at these seven indices. You know, I mean, when you when you try to think about it real realistically or project realistically, which generation is it that you imagine inheriting that solution to those seven problems, being able to engage in radical life extension? Uh, who who is it who's uh, what age is the person now who's going to get to do that 
there are two ways to answer that question. One could ask, uh, how old today is the first person who's going to benefit from all this? And one can ask perhaps the more relevant question, how old today is the first cohort, most of whom are going to benefit? In other words, the, um, you know, the people born in a given year, most of them will actually make it. I would say the answer to the first question, as a 50-50 guess, is about 60, and the answer to the second question is about 30. Stephen Cave, you know, sometimes when I look at my own son, I feel bad for him. I feel as though he is, in fact, inheriting a whole bunch of problems, starting at the top with climate change and a whole bunch of things just hanging like tendrils from a jellyfish down from climate change. I'm listening to Aubrey now and I'm thinking, well, actually, I should envy him. He's going to get he he might actually uh, get this. He might actually get to live for hundreds and hundreds of years. When you think about that, how do you balance those two questions? I think that's a very profound question, and there's no straightforward answer to that. I mean, certainly when I look at my children, I have a sense that at some point I'm going to have to make way for them, that at some point this needs to be their planet. And, of course, that doesn't mean I want to die. I love life. If I didn't love life, I wouldn't want life for my children. And we have, therefore, to make this difficult balance between holding on for as long as we can and getting the best out of it for as long as we can, and at some point handing on the baton. Uh, Wendell, we're, we're low on time, but we're not out of time. So you have home field advantage. You may wind up getting the, the last word here. But I'm going to ask you the, sort of the same question. I, I When I look at young people, when I look at people who are 20 or 25 years old, I feel mainly guilty. I feel as though the people who've been alive now have done a very poor job. And, and for me, climate change is the driving thing. But there's lots of other things, you know, uh, the kinds of things that you talked about, diminishing research, resources, famines, dr- droughts. It seems like it might be a pretty dystopian future that I'm handing off to them. Um, I, I don't know. Should we take solace from what Aubrey's talking about? Maybe maybe not going to be so bad. Maybe you get to live a lot longer than I did. Well, maybe Aubrey's right, but maybe he's far off the mark, in which case we could be leaving our children with an even worse future. So that's what that's what concerns me. Let's say he's partially right, and we solve some of these problems of aging, but we don't solve all of them. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to leave millions more people in nursing homes for an even greater period of time? Because, yes, we can keep their bodies alive, but perhaps we aren't keeping their minds alive. So I'm very concerned about that. All right. Thanks for uh, ev- to everybody who helped out with our show about immortality. Aubrey de Grey, Wendell Wallach, Stephen Cave. Big shout out to Josh Nalea who pulled this whole thing together. I guess we're getting older. I'm Kion Wolf. Oh, thank you, Greg. You fixed my uploaded consciousness. Now I can speak, speak, speak my mind without having to deal with deal with deal with. Live, live forever. They said it'll be so much fun. They said. said.